I'd invite you to turn your Bible to the book of Acts, chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, as we begin our message called This and That. And I'd also, as we do turn to Acts 2, invite you to bow your heads with me just once more for assurance that God's Spirit will guide us in our study together. Our Father, we're, we're cognizant, Lord, that the Bible is an inspired word. The natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God, they're foolishness to him. And neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. We know everything depends upon who is teaching us, what spirit we partake of, who is standing by our side as we search the scriptures. We just ask that you'll banish all darkness, all misapprehension, and all falsehood, that the spirit of truth would speak today, that holy angels will impress upon our minds the things that we need to know, that they would lift our eyes and our gaze toward Jesus, toward heaven, and heavenly things. In Christ's name we ask, amen. The message is called This and That, and I'd like to begin by defining those two words, two small words that we use so often, but maybe haven't taken the time to define clearly. The word this is defined in the dictionary as a person, a place, or a thing that is present, near, just mentioned, or supposed to be understood, as in, this is my coat, this. The word that is used to indicate a person, place, or thing that has already been mentioned, referring to one more remote in place or time or thought as opposed to this. So we tend to think of this as something present and that as something that is more remote or in the past. But there are times when that becomes this. And that is what I would like to talk to you about this morning. It was the day of Pentecost And the year was 31 A.D., just seven weeks had passed since the death and the burial and resurrection of one who many believed and more were believing every day was, in fact, the Messiah. Devout Jews from every nation had come to Jerusalem to celebrate, as they did every year, the Feast of Pentecost. The disciples of Jesus of Nazareth were sitting on a spiritual time bomb. They had a great commission to take their message of their Jesus, whom they believed in as the Messiah, the Christ, to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people on the face of the earth. Pentecost had given the occasion to gather them from all nations there in Jerusalem, but Pentecost could not unite them in one common language. There were Parthians and Medes, there were Elamites and dwellers from Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, in Egypt, parts of Libya about Cyrene. There were strangers from Rome, there were Jews and proselytes, there were Cretes and Arabians. All had come together with one purpose, but so many, many different languages they spoke. And not only that, but the disciples of Jesus were all Galileans, meaning that they were proverbially ignorant, rude, 
corrupt and uncivilized. The term Galilean was used as an expression of deepest reproach and contempt in the first century A.D. You might remember on the night of his cowardly betrayal of Jesus that Peter had been singled out of the crowd standing around that night because of his manner of speaking. They said, your speech betrays you as a Galilean. The Galileans were regarded as an outlandish people, unacquainted with other nations and their languages. And so against this, this backdrop in this context, with this tremendous but very unlikely opportunity before the disciples of Jesus, God had a plan that the disciples had never even considered. As they thought about how they would take their message to every nation on earth, all being uneducated Galileans, there was something that had never entered into the minds of the disciples of Jesus, never occurred to them, never entered their imagination. You know, sometimes God has a way of accomplishing his mission, and his purpose that we haven't ever even considered. Hasn't ever entered into our minds. We're told that God has a thousand ways to help his people of which we have not even considered. So God had a plan, and that plan began to unfold in Acts chapter 2 and verse 1, where it says that they were all with one accord in one place. Now, We know one thing, when God gets ready to do something amazing, he always brings his people together, amen? And he unites them, and they came together, they were in one accord and in one place. And suddenly, when God begins to do something, friends, it can happen suddenly. What do you say? What has waited and what we have waited for can sometimes become a reality very, very suddenly. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven like a rushing mighty wind, like a hurricane, And it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire. And it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled. We know one thing. If we are part of that that movement, those people that come together and that allow God to unite them, nobody gets left out of the blessing. Amen. They were all filled. And the tongues of fire rested on each of them and they were filled with the Holy Ghost. and They began to speak with other tongues or languages as the spirit gave them utterance. And as these unlearned, uneducated Galileans of all people were reported in the streets of Jerusalem to be speaking all these different languages with which they were unfamiliar. The multitude, verse six, says they came together and they were confounded because Every man heard them speak in his own language and they were all amazed and they marveled and they said to each other, behold, are not all these that speak Galileans and how hear we every man in our own tongue or language wherein we were born. And in verse 12, it reiterates they were all amazed, but it says they were in doubt and they said to each other, what does this mean? You know, when God does something supernatural, When God does something that we haven't even dreamed of or ever thought possible, people are going to ask the question, what is this? What does this mean? There was no denying that something unusual was taking place in Jerusalem that day. There was no disputing that something extraordinary was going on at that moment. But what? What 
was this. You know, in the last days, God is going to pour out his spirit on his people in a measure that's going to far exceed what happened there on the day of Pentecost. Do you believe that? And extraordinary things are going to happen. Amazing things are going to happen. Confounding things are going to happen. Things we've never imagined, things we've never dreamed of are going to happen. We're told that God will make it manifest. He's going to move in such a way that it will be plain that God is doing something that we couldn't do. And when unusual things begin to happen in the last days, the same question will be asked. They're going to say, what is this? What does this mean? Well, people offered their interpretation of the events that were unfolding there that day. Some said one thing, some said another thing. And the Bible says that some said the disciples were drunk on wine. But with all these interpretations of what was taking place there, I'd like you to look at verse 14 where it says, but Peter. Peter, it says, standing up with the eleven, said to them, you men of Judea and all you that dwell at Jerusalem, hearken to my words, listen to me. For these are not drunken as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day, it's only nine o'clock in the morning. But look at verse 16, he says, but this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. Now, there are three prepositional phrases there in verse 16 I'd like you to look at. This is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. You see him there? This is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And what follows then is a quotation from the Old Testament book of Joel, chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, where Joel predicts hundreds of years before the day of Pentecost that God would pour out his spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall what? Prophesy, shall prophesy. And Peter remembered Joel's prophecy and the Holy Spirit inspired Peter to stand up and say to the people, this is that. What you are seeing here happening with all these men preaching and teaching in different languages, he said, this is that which prophet Joel has spoken before. And Peter's biblical interpretation of the events that day, his biblical interpretation of the events that day brought light and meaning and clarity to the minds of confused people. The Bible says the entrance of thy word bringeth light. And it brought light and clarity to the people, but also it brought to them the conviction that they needed to listen to what Peter had to say. It was like uh, it was like when Daniel came to a confused King Nebuchadnezzar and told him what he had dreamed the night before. When he heard Daniel's explanation of the recital of the dream, he was compelled to listen to the interpretation And having their undivided attention now, Peter went on in this passage to quote another Old Testament prophet and further declare, this is that. Not in reference to what was happening there with the speaking in the languages, but in reference to what had happened in Jerusalem concerning Jesus of Nazareth, his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Peter says, 
this was that promised about the Messiah by the prophet David. And Peter's biblical interpretation of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus brought conviction to the crowd that 50 days before they had crucified and put to death the king of Israel, the son of God and the savior of the world. And verse 37 of Acts 2 says, verse 37, when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Remember, their first question was, what is this? When someone explained to them what this was, then they said, what should we do? Amen. Isn't that the way it's supposed to work? Confused people say, what is this? Someone explains it to them. And then they are under the conviction to say, what should we do? And Peter says, repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins. The Bible says they repented, they were baptized, and 3,000 souls were added to the church that day. And why? Why this evangelistic explosion? Because one person was able to look at what was happening and say to the crowd, this is what? That. This is that. Now, what does all this have to do with you and me today? Living not in the first century, but in the 21st century of the Christian era. Well, it seems to me that something is happening to us. Something is happening in us and something is happening around us all the time. Am I right? Stuff is happening. And consciously or unconsciously, we are constantly interpreting or trying to explain what is happening to us, in us, and around us. And other people are doing the same thing, aren't they? Christians are doing it. Non-Christians are doing it. Buddhists are doing it, Hindus are doing it, Muslims are doing it, atheists are doing it, trying to figure out the meaning of what's taking place to them, in them, and around them. But not everybody does it in the same way. And many of the things and experiences that people are having and that you are probably having can be very perplexing and confusing and difficult and uh, uh, confounding, can't they? And what is needed today is somebody like Peter that can stand up in the midst of the confusion and say, what? This is that. This is that. Joel's prophecy had been written hundreds of years before. But it had awaited fulfillment until this very day in 31 AD on the day of Pentecost And suddenly, at that moment, that became this. A past prophecy became a present reality right there before their very eyes. Now, there's a vital principle contained in the phrase, this is that. And the principle is that any experience that we may have any happening that we might observe, any occurrence that might take place has to be evaluated, it has to be judged, and it has to be interpreted 
as to whether or not God himself has predicted or foretold that it would happen somewhere where? In his word, right? Every experience, every occurrence has to be interpreted as to whether God has predicted that it would happen somewhere in his word. And so that brings us to this warning. We can never say in our minds, this is what this is. I want you to really think with me. You don't have to think about this. We can never say this is what this is because this is this means that we are creating a reality out of what? Our own mind, our own thoughts, our own feelings, our own experience, our own culture, if you will. Independent of God's word, we can try to create truth out of our own imagination. And the world is full of people that are doing this. Have you noticed that? Philosophers, educators, politicians, talk show hosts, web bloggers, pastors, preachers, all trying to explain world events and circumstances with what the Bible calls private what? Interpretations and all with no more basis for what they're saying than the crowd had that concluded that spirit-filled, spirit-filled men of God preaching the word of God by the power of the God were drunk on wine. I mean, how much more could they have missed it than to think that what God was doing that day was actually the result of being drunk on wine? And so I want to say to us, never put your trust in someone who says, let me explain something to you, and then says, this is what this is. Look for somebody that will say to you, let me explain it to you. This is that which God has written and spoken by the prophets in his word. You see the difference? You see the difference? This is that is the only way to interpret life, experiences, And I think that's what it means to live by every, what? Word that has already proceeded out of the mouth of God. And it's the only way to be grounded in your faith in Jesus Christ. Did you know that? I think 80% or more of Americans believe in Jesus. But if you ask them why they believe in him, many would say, my faith in Christ is based on this. And they will relate to you an experience, an esoteric personal experience that they have had with someone that they believe is who? Jesus, right? Right? Now, that's good. A personal experience is good. But that's not the basis of my faith in Jesus Christ. Is it yours? Is our own independent personal experience the basis of our faith in Jesus? My faith in Christ is not based on this, that I could relate to you about me. My faith in Christ is based on that which the prophets have spoken about him in the word. And that's the way it has to be because everything about Jesus can be summarized by this is that. For example, 
We see him being born in Bethlehem, a very unlikely place for the Savior to be born, right? But instead of being confused about that, we say, oh, born in Bethlehem, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Micah, Bethlehem, you're little among the, you're little among the thousands of Judah, but out of you shall he come forth unto me. Nathaniel saw Jesus coming out of the town of Nazareth or the area of Nazareth. And what was Nathaniel's question? Can any good thing come from there? And what did Philip say? Come and see. Come and see. And that's good. But what could Philip have said? He says, oh. You doubt that the Messiah could come from Nazareth? This is that. Spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. We see Jesus at the woman at the well having dialogue with a Samaritan woman there. And that didn't look very likely. It was very confusing to the people of that time. But we say, this is that which was written by Isaiah. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death upon them, the light has shined. We see Christ entering into Jerusalem on a donkey to the shouts of Hosanna. We say, this is that which was spoken by Zechariah. Behold, thy king cometh to you. He is just having salvation and riding upon an ass. Judas betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver to the Sanhedrin. And we say, this is that which was written by David who predicted his betrayal, and Zechariah, who predicted the price, saying, Yea, my own familiar friend, in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. And so they weighed for my price 30 pieces of silver. We see Jesus scourged, spit upon, beaten, bruised, and bloodied. And instead of saying, Oh, we thought he was the one, we say with Isaiah, He was wounded. For our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. Now, let me ask you this question. Did the disciples live by this principle? This is that. You don't have to read the Gospels too much to realize the disciples didn't really live by that principle too often. Rather, they defined everything that was happening around them in terms of their own sense of what it was, and it got them in a lot of trouble, didn't it? It caused them to be oftentimes surprised, confounded, perplexed, doubtful, discouraged, and found them at the end losing their faith and almost losing their way. The hours after Jesus' death, We find his closest, some of his closest followers disheartened and downcast. And what were they saying over and over? Oh, we thought it was he that would have redeemed Israel. It took Jesus himself coming alongside too on the road to Emmaus to say, Oh, fools and slow of heart to believe what? All that the prophets have spoken. And then beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning Israel himself and so the disciples learned the hard way but praise god they learned because by the time the day of pentecost rolled around 
they had learned to say, this is what? This is that. And it made all the difference in their personal spiritual experience, and it made all the difference in their witness to other people. And so it would in ours as well. You see, there's nothing new that awaits any of us, is there? Does the Bible say there's nothing new where? Under the sun. There is nothing, friends, in your future. Nothing in my future, nothing in our future as a church, nothing in our future as a nation that God has not foretold. Surely the Lord God will do what? Nothing. But he reveals his secrets to his servants, the prophets. The only thing that is in the future are the words of the prophets coming to pass in our personal lives. Don't you like that? The only thing ahead is the words of the prophets coming to pass and becoming reality in our personal lives. And so when we read a promise in the Bible, we need to pray that God will give us that experience that he promises. And having the experience, we can look at the promise and say, oh, this is that. A new heart also will I give you. A new spirit I'll put within you. And I'll take away the stony heart out of your flesh and I'll give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you'll keep my judgments and do them. You like that promise? That promise is good. But the experience is better. Amen? And God wants to give us the experience. And then when we have that experience, we say, oh, this is that which was spoken by Ezekiel. Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, but yet not I. It's Christ living in me, the life I now live in the flesh. I'm not living by, I'm living by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. God wants us to have that experience, doesn't he? Self, dead to self, completely emptied of self, Christ living his life in us and through us. And I tell you, friends, when that happens, it is so unmistakably Jesus instead of us that we'll say, oh, this is that which was spoken by the Apostle Paul. We are not called to create or somehow engineer a spiritual experience or a worship environment that we can put our stamp on and our seal of approval on and say, this is right and this is good. We can only pray to, depend on, and wait for God to make what he has already described a present reality in our lives. And when he does, we will know it, other people will know it, and we will say, this is that. Now, Peter's appeal was to the prophet Joel, and you might notice that he quoted Joel's prediction of the outpouring of the Spirit. But if you read on there in Acts chapter 2, he also quoted Joel's prophecy about blood and fire and vapors of smoke, the sun being darkened and the moon turned into blood. Now let me ask you, did all those things happen on the day of Pentecost? Blood? Fire? Sun darkened? Moon turned into blood? 
No. So why is Peter standing there saying, this is that, which Joel predicted? You ever thought about that? Was there a time when the sun was darkened and the moon turned into blood? Huh? It came a lot later, didn't it? It came a lot later. So what's going on here? Well, what we can know is that what Peter is saying is that Joel's words began to be fulfilled on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem and would continue then being fulfilled as time went forward, approaching the coming of Christ. And the good news I have for us today is that at the very end, friends, every prediction that God ever made in his word will have its complete and total fulfillment. The restoration, Peter said in Acts 3, of all things spoken by all the holy prophets since the world began. Amen? Isn't that rich? Isn't that wonderful? If we have the privilege of living to be the final generation, we will be able to say to the fullest extent possible, this is that, and this is that, and this is that, and this is that. An explosion of the prophecies that have been in God's word all these years. When every promise of God comes to complete fruition in one generation of people living in the very last days. Don't you want to be in that group? I do. And so the second coming and everything associated with the second coming must be this is that. Are you with me? Because anything less than this is that leaves us wide open to what? deceptions, falsehoods, lies. And there'll be a lot of those floating around, won't there? We must develop a habit, friends, as Seventh-day Adventists, of saying, what is this? And then look to God's word for confirmation and then say, oh, this is that. We must learn something from the disciples and not repeat their mistakes because think about it. They had an opportunity later to repent of their unbelief And catch up with the events that were taking place, right? They had an opportunity to catch up later. But the final generation will have no chance or no privilege to catch up. They have to get it right. Or the Bible says even the very elect would be deceived. Now, thankfully, we are part of a movement that I really believe is based on the this is that principle, don't you? Somebody changed the Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday. Is that good or bad? Huh? Well, we all say bad, but why would it be bad? Because this is not that. Because we can't find anywhere in God's word where he ever predicted that he was going to change it. Amen. And so we can't point to the change and say, now this is that. All we can say is this is it. But we can open our Bibles to Daniel chapter 7 and read of the little horn that would think to what? Change what? Times and laws. And there's only one commandment that deals with time. The Sabbath. And we can say, oh, this is that. Which was spoken by the prophet Daniel long ago. 
You know, the early Adventists went through a great disappointment in 1844, right? They thought Jesus was going to come. He didn't. They were sorely mistaken. But in the aftermath of that disappointment, they found the message about the sanctuary and the priesthood of Christ and the judgment that has to happen before he can come again. And the entire Adventist movement is based on this is that. This that we are part of is that which was predicted by John the Revelator in Revelation chapter 10, down to the details. Some people are worried about Ellen White. All Ellen White is, is the fulfillment of that which was written by John in Revelation twelve seventeen that the remnant would keep the commandments of God, including the Sabbath, and have something else. What is it? The testimony of Jesus, which is the spirit of prophecy. One reason I can't join another movement is because they can't say that. They can't say, this is that. Or they might point to Joseph Smith and say, this is that. But where are the commandments of God? We are the people that can say of our doctrines, of our movement, of our belief, this is that, which was spoken by the prophets. Now, we have a history of following this principle, but our times of testing, brothers and sisters, are not over, are they? In many ways, they've only begun. There are very definite events that are connected with the close of probation, the time of trouble and the second coming of Jesus. And we must know what these events are. We must know what has been predicted, and we must recognize it when it happens and be able to say, this is that which was written. There will be competing events connected with The second coming, Satan's end-time counterfeit of the truth. There'll be miracles, signs, wonders, false teachings, false doctrines, false spiritual experiences, false worship, all in the context of a false counterfeit spiritual revival that's going to sweep through the world and sweep multitudes away to destruction. And unless we learn to say, this is that, I'm afraid for all of us that we could get caught up in this is this, Rather than this is that. There is nothing coming that hasn't been foretold. And standing for the truth is going to take two things. Knowing the truth and recognizing the truth when it happens. And this morning before we sing our closing hymn, give me the Bible just like to ask you, is that your conviction that you need to know God's word thoroughly and completely and recognize it when it's fulfilled so that you can be one of those like Peter standing up in the confusion and saying, this is that spoken by the prophets since the world began. Let's stand and sing this wonderful hymn. Give me the Bible. If that's your conviction, I invite you to stand today.